0: Hello friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7am Eastern or catch the Encore at 5pm. We are also on Sirius XM channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Joining us now is Alejandro Monteverde, distinguished movie producer and director of the most recent box office, Smash Success, which I'm sure all of us have seen, Sound of Freedom. He also directed Bella and other pro-life films. Bella is one of my favorites. There's a new film uh, of his that's coming out called Cabrini, It'll be out in theaters on March 8th, which happens to be International Women's Day. And it tells the story of Mother Cabrini, who is the very first American saint. She was, uh, she was born in Italy, but died an American citizen. And her big, her big work was started uh, amongst the very poor, the very, very poor of New York City, Italians, Italian immigrants here in our country, and then moved out to the entire world. She started what she called an Empire of Hope. Welcome to the show, Alejandro.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I was very happy last night sitting on my couch and uh, watching the beautiful film Cabrini that you just just directed that is going to be aired on International Women's Day, which is March 8th. And Maureen, my co-hostess, saw it last summer, and she and I both very much enjoyed it. And I think it's a wonderful addition to a great canon of films from you, Alejandro, so thank you for making it and and tell us what inspired you and what led you to the wonderful Saint Cabrini.
1: Well, I, I was just honored that, you know, this project came knocking on my door. I personally did not know who Cabrini was. I had uh, no knowledge of all her achievements or anything. I, 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 I knew nothing of her. Mm-hmm. And I was very surprised to not have known some, nothing about somebody so... Powerful, mm-hmm. And when I mean powerful is somebody who used all of her given talents, God-given talents to, you know, live for others and, and change, you know, the world for those uh, that had no dignity and, and for the children that were living on the streets and the children of the immigrant. So uh, she was a revolutionary and I didn't know anything about her. So I, 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 got a phone call one day and, and from, uh, Eustace Wolfington, who is not only my mentor, but he had a big devotion to her. just literally it was out of the blue i got a phone call and she asked me if i would read the screenplay and my first instinct was i'll read it but definitely this is not for me i had a little prejudice because you know i wanted to make a movie and movie is supposed to be very entertaining and i just couldn't see how the life of uh in this case a nun could be cinematic in in a way that could be entertaining. You know, a lot of times you do documentaries about characters like this, uh, it's very hard to do a very entertaining film. To my surprise, when I read the script, I realized that her life was extremely entertaining. Uh-huh. And she was a revolutionary in many, many ways. And it, I, I, she, her life shone a light in the world. So I, I saw an opportunity to shine a cinematic light in her life. So that's how it all began. And, and you know, I was mesmerized by her story.
2: Uh, I certainly was, too. And I'm wondering, could you flesh this out a little bit? For our listeners because she's as you said she's the type of saint that we've heard of but as you said we most of us don't know too much about her and one mm-hmm. of the things that struck me so much is that she was this physically tiny weak woman she had ill health she was born prematurely poor health her entire life she was actually rejected by the first group of sisters that she tied tried to join, she had to go out and found her own order. But I think you're right that there is so much drama in the movie because she demonstrates such resilience and perseverance and determination. And even though she's this tiny little person, she became such a giant of the church.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the ultimate underdog story in many ways, you know, it's, it's, it's Rocky. She came here with nothing as a woman, in a time where women had no voice. She was one of the first women to lead an overseas mission just led by women into a country that, you know, was not very welcoming to Italians. And she was able to defy all odds. I mean, she was able to build an empire as big as the Rockefellers, but her empire was not an empire for enrichers, for enriching herself. It was an empire to help others, especially... Those living on the streets, especially children and the sick and those without dignity. And she came in with nothing as an immigrant, was able to, you know, build so many institutions and fight all the way from people from the street, like in this case, a pimp, all the way to the highest political places, like the mayor of New York, in order to achieve and give a voice to those that had no voice. So that in itself has a lot of drama and conflict. She was a fighter, and her ultimate fight is like you said, she was fighting death itself. The doctors were giving her one to two years to live and she was able to squeeze, you know, many, many decades. She died until she was in uh, her late 60s. So, you know, it's this kind of movie. She says a line in the film that it spoke to me very directly and I think it speaks to many people. It's you can serve your weakness or you can serve your purpose. <laughs>
0: Alejandro. We we all have
1: weaknesses and purpose.
0: Alejandro, I have a, a list of notes here to talk to you. And right across the top it says you can serve your weaknesses or you can serve your purpose. Because I, I brought that line away with me from the movie, and I almost want to engrave it on, on my, my mirror where I brush my teeth, because so often we are overwhelmed by the thought of our, our frailties and the, the things that we just can't get right, or we think we never be able, will be able to get right. And what a wonderful example, right, of, uh, of a person whose single-minded um, devotion to a beautiful project is, yeah. able, is able to conquer all those own weaknesses and the weaknesses that weren't just hers, right? The weaknesses of being female, the weaknesses of being an immigrant and the wrong kind of immigrant. Um, you know, watching the movie last night, as I saw it last night, there's a whole line running through the movie about being an immigrant and what that means in a country like the United States. You're an immigrant. I I I came here at the age of eleven from Mexico myself, and it's we live in an amazing country, the United States. It's it's the only country I can I have ever heard of where everyone's from somewhere else, right? If either either you or your parents or you go back a couple of generations, and so we have this rich, fascinating land, and yet every immigrant experience has these um, these hard obstacles, right? That we have to that we have to get over, and. In Cabrini's, uh, in this wonderful saints case, was the prejudice against Italians, even by the more recent, the immigrants right before them, which were the Irish. Was it was it really interesting to you to delve into that that complication of being an immigrant in the United States in this film?
1: Yes, but you know, you said it. This is a very powerful and beautiful country. So if you think yes, there was a lot of discrimination against Italians, but there is a line in the film that I love. It says, one day, somebody will be in this office and he won't be cleaning it and we already had a mayor many, a couple of different mayors that were from italy exactly. uh, mayors of new york so it shows you how an immigrant can come here and become a mayor. Yeah. uh you know from, from uh, the descendant so it is a country that even though it sounds like a cliche, it is a land of opportunity. And the film explores that because Cabrini came with nothing. And at the end, she built this, one of the top hospitals of New York. So it, it is also reflects and, 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 and celebrates All the opportunities that these countries has to offer, even though you have to go to challenges, but like these are obstacles that can actually be defeated. You know, unfortunately, you can't say that about about other countries. You know, the 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 obstacles are impossible to get to to overcome. And in this case, it 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 explores that, even though there was all this you know resistance against you know the Italians uh, before it was. The the uh, the Irish and you know after Italians you know were many different Asians and then obviously uh, Mexicans and it's it's just been a um, it, it is part in many ways has become part of the process but I identify with with the film a lot because I came here not in not even speaking English mm-hmm. with really bad grades and I was able to. To, you know, get into university, get my grades, get into film school. And, you know, the, 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 the doors continue to open and the opportunities continue to open. And I, I, I'm very grateful to, to the, my immigrant story and I identify with, 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 I think that's what the, the what's is so interesting about this, this film is that this movie is not about immigration. It's if it, this movie is about the immigrant, which mm-hmm. is very different. And, um, it, it really kind of explores, you know, the life of the immigrant and she wants to help those in need. In this case it was the immigrant in the streets.
2: That's a, a great distinction there. And, um, My father grew up in an area of New York City, an enclave of Irish immigrants, and it happens to be right near Mother Cabrini Park. So I know her legacy runs um, very powerfully, especially in that area of the city where she founded these hospitals and schools and orphanages, I think 67 in all, not just in New York City, but all across the United States and really all across the world. Something that was very touching to me was the story from her childhood, when she seemed to first have a sense of her vocation. There's this story of her placing little flowers and paper boats, violets, and dropping them in a stream and imagining that they carried her off to be a missionary in China. And when she went to the Pope, she asked to be sent to China, apparently, but he had a different answer and a different plan for her. But but this story also sheds light on why her name is St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Could you share that story with us?
1: Yeah, I mean, what was very interesting is, um, you know, the, the writer of the film Rodbar, he did a lot of research. I mean, I think he read every single book there is about her, but also. He went to Lombardy. he traveled all around Italy, getting to know, you know, reading documents that were not public, uh, like the Senate that was not public. That's something that, you know, he found by diving really deep into, uh, you know, the depths of of her life. So it's, you know, for me, my job was just to kind of create a, a cinematic experience of her life. She lived her life very artfully and I wanted to depict her life in the most artistic and most cinematic way. So it is, you know, that the film, when you finish, it leaves you in a state of reflection that inspires you in whatever, you know, battle you're facing. This is one thing that we've been seeing with with audiences. You know, the movie speaks to everybody in a very personal way and, you know, I can share many, many stories of different people that are facing, you know, different kind of battles. You know, I have had friends that, you know, are going through very difficult times in their marriage and they saw Cabrini and they're like, well, if she was able to fight for and, and accomplish all of that, maybe we give another shot to 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 their, their given situation. Same thing with people that are struggling with any kind of things. So it is a very inspirational film, uh, uh, you know, that, it, it it it's it's just I, I like to make movies that begin when the movie ends. You know when the movie ends it leaves you in a state of reflection and you start questioning you know yourself about you know more profound and meaningful uh questions. And for me I uh there was a movie that I saw when I was in film school with Chindra's list who is you know Schindler himself was a Catholic and he you know was, rescue thousands of thousands of of jewish lives and at the end of the film he looks at his car and he says you know i could sell my car and save one one more and i remember leaving the theater and walking home and realizing you know that the film had put a deeper question in my life well what am i doing for others besides every all the plans was me me and me you know i wanted to make movies just because I love movies. And I remember leaving that theater and saying, that's the kind of cinema I want to make. And when I read the life of Cabrini and her fight, and also in many ways her surrender, she wanted to go to China and, you know, there was different plans. You know, there's a saying you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. (laughs) She said her plans and the plans was to start in New York. And, you know, that whole odyssey, it's a journey. It was a, a very, very cinematic journey, her life. And, and, I was just honored to be able to capture it on film.
0: Alejandro, the the woman who played uh, Mother Frances so beautifully cast. She does such a wonderful job. And I know it's uh, a lot is the director is how I don't know anything about film, but I'm sure that a lot of it is uh, how you're able to to elicit that from her. There was a, a true sense of, of holiness uh, on this in, in shining out of her face. Especially when she was interacting one on-one with the 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 orphans and and the people she's 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 so passionate about. And also with the Pope, I think there's a beautiful relationship there on the screen between Mother Frances Cabrini and the Pope who who is her supporter and who who backs her up after he believes in yeah. her. He learns to believe in her.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I was looking for on, on I mean, it, the, 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 casting of, of, of Cabrini was extremely difficult. I mean, uh, I, I knew that if, if fighting tested correctly, the movie wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that Cabrini had a lot of power in her eyes because you cannot accomplish, you cannot, I mean, it's really hard to build one hospital. Can you imagine opening 66 institutions from schools, to hospitals, to orphanages, all around the world. So it it hit me that in order to achieve that, she must have have, had the power to arrive into any given country, let's say Nicaragua, show up, and within three or four months, she needed to get the construction going, the money in place, you know, everything going and move to another. It's not like today, you just get on a plane. (laughs) At that time, you got to take the transatlantic or go here or go there. So... She must have had this conviction in her eyes in order to be able to close you know these business deals because at the end, you know she, these are institutions. She, she built an empire a worldwide empire. Well she was alive. Her empire continues on because there's a line in the film that she says the world is too small for what I intend to do. And you know now that we're about to release the film, I say, would she never say what I, the world is too small for what I intend to do while I'm alive? Cause her legacy continues on and you know, now there's an opportunity to shine a life, light, a light in her on, on her life. But yeah, it's, I do think that that was a big challenge is to find that actor that had the power on her eyes. And that's how, uh, when I met, uh, Christiana, Delana, she's a, she was Italian, but I could see, you know, she had that, that power, but most importantly too, you know, she got to be very compassionate and you know with uh, to me the best performance are the ones that ha- doesn't use any words mm-hmm. it's just just a look you know when she's with 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 Victoria when she's with Paolo the kid and these are kids that carry a lot of guilt and they feel judged and she just has a lot of compassion on, on her eyes and that in itself is one of the things that you know I was very honored to be working with, with with an actor that could achieve that because that's not easy. And she really dove in, really deep into the character, and really uh, that's the, a lot of uh, preparation and 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 you know really really understanding what drove Mother Cabrini. You know what made her defy death every day, and it was purpose. And so in one side she was very purposeful, driven and that's what gave her the power to defy death daily and in the other side it was her great love for those in it and sometimes the greatest fighters are the the ones they love the most because they're willing to die for what they they love and Cabrini had both so it was a it was a very complex character because in one fight you have to be you know very driven and Keeping people's faces. And the other side has to be extremely loving, and very compassionate. And, you know, you got to have those elements in order to build what she built.
2: You know, I have to say you had an absolute home run on the casting. I think it was just brilliant. And um, we have we have a family friend who's the son of Italian immigrants. And uh, she looked just like all of his daughters look, and, uh, and particularly in the eyes, you were mentioning the eyes. Um, so, okay, so we're coming up on the official release date for the film, March 8th, International Women's Day. Can you tell us the plans for the release of the film? Where will our listeners be able to find this beautiful and inspiring film?
1: I mean, right now people can buy tickets already, you know, the tickets are in pre-sale and it just shows all the theaters where the movie's playing. I think it's getting a very wide release. I think it will be in every theater in America. So, um, it's, it's, this is the kind of movie that again, you know, we are an underdog because, we, we still we don't have the massive budgets that these big studios movies have. You know, they have hundreds of millions of dollars to promote their films. Our billboards, it's the audience is creating this chain of word of mouth. People seeing the movie and coming out and telling people about it. That's what we're relying on. It's a, I call them walking billboards. You know, this is the people, is the audience. So the first week is the most important week. Because if 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 we you know hit the numbers that we need to hit, then the movie will continue to stay in theaters. It's that simple. And if we don't hit the numbers, then we start losing theaters. So it is almost the first week. It kind of decides uh, the the longevity of the movie in theaters. If if we hit the numbers, then we give we get more theaters. If we don't hit the numbers, then we start losing theaters. But right now. Uh, um, the pre-sales are doing incredible. We've sold thousands and thousands of tickets as of today. And it's, it's, it's from my understanding, it will be in, in it's a very wide release. So it will be in pretty much almost every theater.
0: Alejandro, it's opening on March 8th, which is International Women's Day. And I was very, there's a lot in the film about what it means to be a woman, and the power that a woman can have even in, in, in times and places where she's deemed powerless, like like um, the saint, this wonderful saint. Um, but she presents a very different uh, idea of what we would call feminism in today's culture. What What is the difference to you um, b- between the kind of feminine empowerment that the saint, that that Mother Cabrini showed, and what the culture presents as feminine empowerment?
1: Well, for me, you know, I have never, I never, I I always try to stay away from any political terminology. And, you know, for me, anything that goes into that box, I always stay true to what I'm doing. And this movie celebrates the power of the woman's voice. And there's nothing wrong with that. If, if 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 this movie was about the life of St. Francis, then I would be celebrating the power of the man's voice. It's just in this case, it happened to be a woman and I used the opportunity to celebrate her life, to celebrate her voice, and to f- celebrate her power. I mean, she was a powerful woman. No one can deny that. She was walking into a place and get things done. That was one of the things. That was what she was. She could get things done. And that I celebrate. And uh, when I saw that in her life, I was like, I want to shine a light on that. And that's, was the motive, my intent. Now I know, unfortunately we live in an area that everything that needs to be labeled. And I've always, you know, most of my films suffer from that. They, they, they like, for whatever reason, you know, they've, from the beginning of my career, everything I do is, is it's, 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 it's almost been a victim of, let's label it some way, somehow. Uh, and I just don't think, you know, that we, we, we need to label or, or, or compare with any other labels. You know, in this case, what I want to say is that the film celebrates womanhood celebrates the power of the woman's voice and celebrates Mother Cabrini who it was a powerful woman that happens to be a nun but I wanted to make a movie about her so the movie doesn't uh, excludes any audience You know, every label excludes an audience the minute they say well you know this movie is this or this it, it's going to exclude another audience and her life was very universal you know I don't know anybody that is against helping the poor and helping those people that are outside living on the streets or the immigrant uh, that is, you know, needs help. So that was her life, and 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 I I, I was mesmerized by by her her conviction, her power, her co- her compassion, her purposeful driven life. So that is what I I wanted to. Celebrating in the most cinematic way and and i i think that's what i i know i never would like to say what i think i just think that's what the audiences are taking out out of out of when they watch this film
0: well i think alejandro you succeeded brilliantly with with this wonderful story about uh, Saint Francis Cabrini, Mother, uh, it's called Cabrini. It will be opening on March eighth. You heard the director. Please buy tickets in advance to keep this uh, wonderful movie in the theaters as long as possible. And and I can and I can back I can back you up on what you said, Alejandro. It is a movie that can be watched by anybody. It doesn't exclude anyone. I was thinking, I was watching it with, I actually watched it with a, a friend, a priest friend who's visiting our home. He comes every year to visit us. And we both thought it was fabulous. And we we remarked upon the fact that we could recommend this friend to the most, this film, to the most liberal progressive people that we know, and they would they would take away exactly the same thing that we took away, which is that there is power and purpose and there's even more power and mercy and compassion. So thank you so much, Alejandro, for uh um, and thank joining you.
1: And thank today. you. And thank you for that because that is my, you know, my biggest goal. I like to make movies that unite, you know, people. And I I I do think everybody has a right to, you know, have different opinions and different beliefs. But I also believe that we agree and more things that we disagree as a society. We just don't take the time to talk about the things that we agree. It's mm-hmm. most people when they meet, they want to find out what they disagree, and then the friendship is gone or a conversation is gone. Mm-hmm. If we start on what we agree as a society, as an international society, we will find out that we agree way more things than we disagree. And that's you know the kind of cinema I want to make, and 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 uh, very excited to share this film with the world.
0: Well, you've succeeded. Our our audience, our audience can go to angel.com forward slash tickets or forward slash cabrini and go ahead and buy tickets. So thank you so much, Alejandro.
1: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: Joining us next is a good personal friend and a friend of the shows, Jeannie Mancini. She's president of the March for Life. We are two weeks uh, out from the, the last wonderful March for Life in DC, the wonderful annual event, and we're going to hear all about it from her and also other things that have been going on around the country and ways that even if you can't get up to DC, or maybe you live far from any center where big marches are happening, you can also be part of the pro-life movement. So welcome to the show, Jeannie. Oh, Gracie, thanks so much for having me. So you are in that, that period where you, you, you've you got the March for Life um, off the ground, you made it happen, which must be so difficult every year, and now I'm sure you're decompressing and and also digesting you know, all the things that happened differently this year, things that are happening new at the March for Life. So tell us about the, tell us about the March, how it went, were you happy with the results this year? Yes, I mean,
3: I always, you know, see things from kind of the, like under the hood perspective. So there are always things that I can think of that we could do a little bit differently. But I was delighted with the speakers. I thought that they were just incredibly inspiring and the crowd was enormous. In fact, right before I came over to um, chat with you, I was just speaking with father Charles Truyos from the CIC and he had pulled me aside to talk about how big the crowd was and some of the speakers and everything. So it really was kind of mind boggling. And I think marchers left with just a, you know, a buoyed kind of enthusiasm and spirit. And I, then one other fun little aspect was it snowed that day. And so it was kind of magical. I mean marching and it wasn't so, so, so cold. Um, so it was like beautiful but not too cold. So it was it was great.
0: I wasn't able to go this year. I think it's the first time I haven't been there in many years. And mm-hmm. I was sorry to miss it, but it was inevitable. I couldn't I couldn't change what couldn't be changed. And but I did have friends, good close friends who had never been, and they were texting me the whole time and sending me photos, and they were so oh. they were so overwhelmed with the 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 energy, the 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 that's a kind of they described it to me as kind of a peaceful voice. Bois- they're boisterous but peaceful, which is a, mm. an interesting combination, right? Like the people are very joyful and. And excited, and at the same time, there's a lot of peace in the march, which I think maybe is not something you very often see when you have a, uh, a collection of a hundred thousand people or more in one place. That kind of that combination of the the boisterousness, but also a deep peace.
3: I think that's exactly right. We sometimes see pictures, you know, and hear about marches for anger. It's really kind of prevalent, and that that couldn't be further from what our marchers are about. Um, it's very much sort of an anti-violent, like, um, love at the heart of the pro-life movement. And I think especially with our theme this year, With Every Woman, For Every Child, uh, it was, I mean, the, the message is basically we want people to flourish, we want unborn babies to flourish, we want moms that are facing unexpected pregnancies to flourish, we want families to flourish, and there's a lot of joy um, that comes with that, you know, and also just comes with standing up for the single most significant human rights issue of our day.
0: Why is it, Jeannie, you are so practiced in this, you've been involved for so long, why is the dignity of the unborn the central issue for our country because a lot of people will say no that's not true so much is going on why do you why do people like you and i focus so strongly on this one on this one particular piece of it
3: well i guess there's really two i mean i'm sure there are two things that come to mind i'm sure there's many more than two but um the first is you know, as Catholics, we're, we're for human dignity, just in general, and for people fully humanly flourishing. But in order for people to be able to have the dignified rights, uh, you know, whether it's like the rights of workers, or, or you know, uh, healthy, like immigration laws, or, or what have you, but in order to have any of those properly in place, you need the very most basic right to be in place, which is just the right to live, the right to be able to be carried to term and to be born. And so it's foundational, I mean, just in that sense. And so all other rights don't even come into play if this first most important right isn't protected and nurtured. And so so there's just kind of the hierarchy and the priority of it as well as the sheer volume of the loss of life. Um, we've lost over 65 million Americans to abortion. And that means that every day in this country, there are over 4,000 abortions that are happening. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I think I just did the math. Wrong. I think even just in my state every day, there are that many, something along those lines. And so um, really we're talking about a massive volume of life that's being lost and moms that are, Um, carrying the war wounds often of having been involved in in abortion. So so that's one of the reasons why I think it's the most significant human rights abuse of our time and the most important issue. I would say the other thing is confusion over what it means to be male and female and the fact that the, the gift of motherhood is a miracle and it's something to be cherished and nurtured and the fact that men and women are inherently... Um, equal in dignity, but different, inherently different is very important anthropologically and theologically. I mean, this is like, we're talking about the basics of what it means to be human. And there's so much confusion over that right now. And I think very much the idea of abortion as, you know, erroneously being labeled as a, a positive for women and so much confusion around that. I think that those things are all linked together so it's really a crisis in what it means to be human in a lot of ways and i think that's one of the reasons that this is one of the most significant human rights abuses of our time
0: so you think that the fact that legal that killing is legalized and that in abortion and that the people we are killing in a legal way are the most vulnerable and the smallest and the ones that need the most protection has it's like an it's like an injection of poison no into into what it means to be human and people's understanding of what it means to be human because if we are human beings who understand ourselves as as we ought to understand ourselves then we should protect our young right but it's absolutely like, but so it's there's, like we build a society al- on on a on a lie which is that we're not supposed to protect our young and and that throws everything off am i am i understanding you correctly Well, I think what you just said is a great point.
3: That is a really, really beautiful and good point. And I I was making a different one. And maybe it's less important than the point that you're making. But I do think that the human dignity point, the first one, like the the first and and most uh, critical right, like no other rights will be protected. That would be one. But the other point I was making is that um, we're so confused about the role of moms and Mm -hmm. the role of women. And that we've kind of pitted motherhood and um, you know, fully flourishing as a woman kind of against each other. So that this, this it's, it's like it's turned on its face. It's so satanic that the idea that a woman would take the life of her unborn child. I mean, that which is most miraculous and most beautiful about being a woman. That she can um, co-create life and nurture life in her womb and that, you know, that that's flipped on its face with this lie about abortion being good for women and pitting moms and babies against each other. It, to me, that's just philosophically like a very big problem um, culturally. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that came to mind when you asked me that question.
0: Women, are, women and girls are very unhappy these days when, when people are polled, when women are polled. Um, they are. They don't report being happy, even though women today have more power and more freedom and and more scope for their for their their talents and and the things that that they like to do. Um, and girls are committing suicide at horrible rates. Mm. Um, so mm. it seems to me that we that women have been sold a pack of like a bill of goods. Right? They've been sold a lie that that this kind of life that that the culture is offering them is going to bring them happiness. And the, yeah. and the and the difference is so huge. I love that in your march this year you were focusing on the baby and the mother because it's um it's this it's this gorgeous relationship, the mother-child relationship, and the lie of abortion goes right there and and wrecks that the root of that, of that, that reality of of our femaleness, which is that we are nurturers and protectors. And, Mm -hmm. and that's what we were built to do. And then what happens to us is we tell (coughs) younger women, you know, we're, we're raising them in an, in an environment where we say, no, you're not nurturers and protectors, you're hunters and gatherers. And, you know, the children will just have Mm. to, you won't care when you destroy your child. How how beautiful that you focus (coughs) on the mother. Um, Mm. Did you, in, in the March, did you, how do you see the, the women, for instance, and the girls that go to the March? What, what is their attitude when they're there?
3: They, I, they're, I think they're the best spokespeople, um, the young girls and, and the women, and we have lots of female speakers always at the parts for life. Um, but I see them as serene, um, kind of what you described before. There's like an energy, very, um, very confident in why they're there and knowing that this is a very significant issue and they want to stand up for the poorest of the poor and also serene and joyful so kind of the opposite of what you were describing as many women in culture today i see the ladies participating in the march as you know being very beautiful and peaceful and joyful
0: Mm -hmm. how pretty that 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 Mm -hmm. you have that that other vision of of femininity right that's I think a, a vision of femininity that takes into account our entire natures, the our, including our biology and the way that we've been created or that we've adapted to our environment over millennia, right?
4: Mm-hmm. Um, for, mm-hmm.
0: for what our environment needs um, or, or what it calls from us, which is to protect the the next generation. How do you see? Um, we are, you know, so twenty twenty. This this year has been difficult since Roe v. Wade was overturned by Dobbs. I'm sure that for you, it's been difficult uh, because you are at the helm of such an important organization and you're right in the thick of things because of the way that everything has been displaced into the states, right? So it feels like everybody, instead of all of us fighting a united battle against something like Roe v. Wade, which was so unjust and so wrong, everyone is now fighting their own individual battles at the state level and, and so many moving pieces. Has that been your experience since Dobbs? Well, I, so I guess I see it a few ways.
3: there I do I know what you're saying, but I think it's great that the states now have more control to enact pro-life protections. And we know that over half or or I'm sorry, just under half of the states have enacted laws that are much more life protective than they could under the roe regime because mm-hmm. that was really like twenty weeks or or earlier weren't allowed. And so, um, So many laws have enacted like a heartbeat um, protection law or 15 week pain capable law, et cetera. So it's exciting to see that States are doing that. Now at the same time, you know, we've had these ballot initiatives where we've, not been victorious and we were learning a lot and losing a lot in those and so certainly that's been discouraging and I think we need to figure out a path forward in those states that have enacted those ballots and now their constitution is amended to be more pro-abortion um and I would say that I would definitely agree that um just culturally, there's so much confusion in the wake of the overturn of Roe. We're sort of living in the cultural reverberations because it was such an earthquake um, to have Roe overturned. And many people just don't understand even what that means. A lot of people thought that men abortion was now illegal. You know, mm-hmm. um, I can remember even a devout Catholic like six months after the Dobbs decision came down, I was in Home Depot of all places. And I saw this guy and he's like, isn't it amazing? Abortion's illegal now, you know? No, I I mean, I wish, you know, we wish it was illegal and unthinkable, but that's not, even though Roe, did make abortion legal in all 50 states. The overturn of road did not make abortion illegal or more importantly, unthinkable in our country. And so there's so much confusion over what that decision actually did, but essentially it, it allowed states more control to enact pro-life laws. And though we still do have to fight at the national level. And that's something that at the national march, we try to work very much on. And if we have time, I know I'm kind of going on right now, but I'd love to fill you in a little bit more on our state March initiative, because we're doing a lot of the work there at the states now
0: and had started that long before the Dobbs decision. So that's why I brought um, up the states, because I do want to hear our listeners, I know, want to hear what's going on at the state level. Oh,
3: great. Great, great, great. Well, uh, we began state marches in 2018. We were just kind of checking it out. The reason we started it was because the single question we were getting asked organizationally to do more than anything else was to help start local marches. And so at the time, we really had a question about if we had the bandwidth or could do that, or even if it would be strategically the best best decision. But we uh, started in my own home state, Virginia, in April of 2018 and had this massive march in the capital of Virginia in Richmond, where 7,500 people came out. And it was incredible. I mean, it got the attention of the governor of um, the state senator, the national senators from Virginia. And it was truly just incredible front page news in Virginia, all of that. And so that was the first and, um, you know, we've, been really growing since then. We slowed down because of COVID, certainly. But since 2018, we've grown quite a bit to the extent that this year, 2024, we'll be in 14 different states, maybe more. We may be in as many as 16 or 17. And we plan over the course of the next six years to be in all 50 states. And so we're really staffing up and um, putting most of our resources in that state march initiative. And it's been beautiful to see the support and how that's been able to help enact good pro-life policy at the state level, and just to get the word out about this issue.
0: So it sounds like this is something that our listeners could look up and maybe get involved mm-hmm. locally. Everyone, I mean, uh, most people who are pro-life are are looking for some way to get their hands in the mix, right? And sometimes it, those those ways are not so obvious.
3: Right. That's a great point. And this is one way that's very obvious. If we're not in your state, we're at a state near you. (laughs) But in many cases, we are in your state or we're coming soon. So check us out at MarchForLife.org and at the State March drop-down menu, and you'll see all of the upcoming marches in 2024.
0: So 14 states with more coming up, and hopefully soon all 50. And And I think this is a really good idea, Jeannie, because, as I said before, the, the the landscape is different in each state. and it can be confusing for for those of us who are not looking at this all the time. Um, it can be confusing to see where our energy should be focused. like what are the what are the challenges in our state? Like, for instance, in Florida, we just went through a campaign. Um, all the all the different pro-life groups were organizing a campaign to to try to get try to to not have, an amendment um, making abortion legal through all forty uh, all forty weeks put on our ballot, um, and unfortunately, we failed. <laughs> but mm. it's going to be on the ballot. Um, and if we had some, if we'd had a state march, and and maybe this is something we could have organized better, like get you know get all the right people together and and mobilize in a in a way that is. Um, Again, joyful and peaceful, but very, very effective, like the March for Life. Yeah. There, it seems to me, and what I've witnessed
3: is that there's great power in mobilizing the grassroots. Like sometimes people ask, what's the importance of marching and and giving this public witness? And there is something that's very powerful about it. Like just the unified, you know, sheer volume of people coming together and then, um, and, and united for this same cause. It's, it is very powerful to rally the grassroots and absolutely. It helps with some of these different tricky laws or initiatives that are coming. I feel that we haven't yet found the perfect solution to some of these initiatives, like what's happening in, happening in Florida, but I think we, we'll get there. We need to, and we will soon.
0: Well, we will with your help. So thank you so much, Jeannie Mancini, president of the March for Life. And you can hear, you can read more about that at marchforlife.org and go to the state drop down menu and see what's going on near you. So thank you, Jeannie. Thanks for having me, Gracie. And now, Father Roger Landry offers a short and inspiring homily for this Sunday's Gospel.
4: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you. The consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we'll have an opportunity to examine the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and get a glimpse of an ordinary day in His life. His priorities can help us examine our priorities, both with regard to how we're receiving His work in our life, as well as how we're continuing His work. Jesus began his day by preaching for a very long time in the synagogue on the Sabbath, which, as any priest could tell you after a Sunday morning, must have been somewhat exhausting all day work, since people would return home normally only after sunset. Then Jesus went to Simon's house, where he healed Simon's mother-in-law. Then, since it was after sundown and the Sabbath was over, the people of Capernaum brought to Jesus all who were ill or possessed by demons. St. Mark tells us that the whole town was gathered around the door. Jesus cured the sick and cast out demons. It was likely very grueling work, because in no part of the Gospel did Jesus ever do general healing services, but cured the ill with possessed one by one so that he could establish a personal relationship with each grateful recipient and hopefully bring them from a physical cure to a far more important spiritual one. It was probably quite late by the time he finished. He arose the next morning, St. Mark tells us, very early before dawn and went to a deserted place to pray, showing that prayer was more important to him than sleep and setting for us an example not to make excuses that we have no time to pray. The evangelist tells us that Simon and his companions, when they didn't find Jesus, went out to hunt him down. When they finally found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Without question, the hordes had brought many others of the sick and the possessed from the surrounding regions to Jesus and were hoping for a sequel to what they had witnessed the night before. Everyone is looking for you. We might have expected that Jesus' response would have been one of jubilation. After all, wouldn't he later say, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will refresh you? Jesus wanted people coming to him with their burdens. He wanted to give them refreshment. But Jesus, when told that everyone was looking for him, didn't respond by saying, Alleluia! Rather much to their surprise, he stated, Let us go on to the nearby villages, so that I may preach there also. For this purpose I have come. Jesus had come to announce the gospel of the kingdom of God probably realized in prayer that morning how urgent the task was for him to accomplish the mission the father had given him. He probably grasped as well that the people were coming to him not so much to receive what he most wanted to give them, but to obtain from him what they themselves wanted. The crowds looked at Jesus as a wonder worker, as a powerful exorcist, and as a shockingly inexpensive and unbelievably effective physician. But Jesus had a different set of priorities than the crowds. He wanted them to accept him on his own terms, not theirs. He wanted them to come to him, not principally as the doctor of their mortal bodies, but as the savior of their immortal souls. Jesus' priorities get us to focus first on ours with regard to him. Do we hunger for what he wants to give us or for what we want him to give us? Do we seek to accord our priorities with his or his with ours? It's still common today that many people like those in today's gospel come to the Lord mostly as a miracle worker, as a benefactor who can pull strings to get us out of a jam, as a powerful friend who can provide a quick fix to a problem we're facing. Jesus, however, wants more. As he said in the gospel, the reason why he came from heaven to earth was to proclaim the message of the kingdom, to proclaim it in such a way that it won't fall on deaf ears, that it won't be ignored, but embraced, followed, and lived with joy. Jesus wants us to respond to his proclamation of the kingdom with the same type of life-changing faith that we see in the Blessed Mother and the apostles. That's his priority. Many of us, let's be honest, might believe that Jesus has his priorities mixed up. After all, Imagine how full our churches would be if Jesus through parish priests or through one of the parishioners was working tremendous miracles of healing. The dramatic exorcisms would bring national international media attention. All those with cancer or paralysis or back pain or emotional scars could come to the church and leave completely healed. Probably it would also bring some of the criminals and drug dealers. When seeing this incredible divine power working through human instruments might be brought to conversion. But that's not the way Jesus chooses to do it. Instead, he fundamentally sends priests ordained in his person and the whole church with them to preach the gospel of the kingdom. From Jesus' own divine perspective, the greatest gift he can give any of us, whether we're ill or suffering or healthy, is his holy word. Jesus wants us most to listen to his preaching, to embrace his word, and in consuming the word made flesh in the Eucharist, to become so one with the word that we become living commentaries of life in the kingdom. Doing so, he's not ignoring all our ills and problems but trying to address them at their root. All of these sufferings and difficulties are symptoms of the same essential cancer, the cancer of sin. Physical pain comes as a result of the first sin of our parents at the fall. Our emotional pain and many of our illnesses come from the wounds that our sins and others have caused. Jesus isn't ducking any of these difficulties, but in his divine omniscience is trying to lead us to what is the ultimate cure for them all. We see Jesus' priorities at work in the lives of his first apostles. The first time Jesus sent them out, gave them instructions first to preach that the kingdom is among them, and then to cure. In the time of the early church, the apostles recognized that because their first duty was to prayer in the ministry of the word, preaching in other words, imitating Jesus' prayer and his proclamation in Sunday's gospel, they didn't have any extra time for other good works of charity, which because those works of charity are too essential to be neglected, They needed to ordain seven deacons to accomplish. St. Paul even gave up baptizing, which others could do, so that he could travel more to preach. He said, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. And in this Sunday second reading, he'll say, woe to me if I don't proclaim the gospel was a duty imposed on him that he wanted to fulfill. You may be surprised to discover that the Fathers of the Second Vatican Council, in their document on the priesthood, said that it is the first duty of priests to preach the gospel of God to all men. Preaching is a more important duty than even the celebration of the sacrament because our practice of the sacraments is dependent on having our faith in them aroused by the word of God. Each of us has a great lesson to learn in this. God wants more from us than just to pray as Jesus did very early in the morning. He wants more from us than merely to care for those who are ill, loving them and trying to help them according to our capacities, just like Jesus did according to His. It's a beautiful work. But Jesus also wants us, having heard the saving words of the Gospel, to spread them, to bring this good news of salvation to others. Pope Francis asked in his exhortation the joy of the gospel, if we have received the love that restores meaning to our life, how can we fail to share that love with others? What kind of love would not feel the need to speak of the beloved, to point him out, to make him known? Because we are convinced of the difference Jesus makes, we must evangelize. We must go to those who haven't yet heard or embraced this proclamation of the kingdom and propose it to him. We know how much our culture needs this proclamation. We know how much various family members and friends do. 2,000 years ago, at the end of the day in his life that we observe in this Sunday scene in the gospel, Jesus left those who were seeking him in order to go to other villages to preach the gospel of the kingdom. After the ascension, however, he changed his method of operation. He no longer leaves to go to other neighborhoods or cities. But instead, he stays in the tabernacle and wants to send us, just like he did his first followers, to the other villages. He does this not so that he can have a well-earned eternal vacation, but because he loves us. And he realizes that the greatest gift he could give any of us is the vocation to share in his mission of the proclamation of the kingdom for the salvation of the world. So let us go to the nearby houses, streets, and villages. Everyone is still looking for Jesus, even if they don't yet know it. Let's do what we can to bring Jesus to them and them to him. For this reason, he came. For this reason, he has sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and at our confirmation. For this reason, he ultimately created us. God bless you.
0: With that, I leave you. And thank you again for being our listeners. And we continue to pray for you always.